dirt road in a gooseneck saddle up with me dry land in god's country crops far as i can see the headlights on both ends of my day this country Welcome, folks, to HPJ Talk, the podcast from High Plains Journal, bringing the ag news and commentary of the week to you. I'm Jennifer M. Latsky, and I'm joined by my colleague, Kayleen Scott. Hey there, Kayleen. Hey, Jenny. All righty. Well, we are on the cusp of the 4th of July. I bet your boys are just itching to get some fireworks, aren't they? Yeah, we're they're chomping at the bed to get some. There's a few left over from last year that are under my desk here in my office, and they've been trying to get them, but I won't let them have them. <laughs> I told them when there's no horses around. Well, there's no horses around now because we parceled them out to other places for a while, and they think now that the horses are gone, it's time to blow everything up. <laughs> well, you got to be careful, though, because it's awful dry out your direction, isn't it? Yeah, it's dry enough. At baseball practice last night, I heard a few pops and cracks in town. It's like, really? <laughs> it's 100 degrees. It's still light out. Oh, uh, yeah. And the wind's blowing, and you're going to shoot fireworks off. Smart guy. Well, I tell you what, Maggie Mayhem, um, it's her own personal D-Day over here, um, over on uh, Bond Circle. Uh, the poor thing is just... It, she's terrorized from the last week of June till about the second week of July because our neighborhood in town, they are some pyromaniacs on high alert. I tell you what, um, I just had to go to the vet this morning to get her prescription for her doggy um, calming meds. <laughs> she gets a little half dose of clonazepam. <laughs> I don't know. The, the poor thing. She does really well on him, though. You know, you give him to her, and about maybe an hour after you give him to her, she's just real chill. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing bothers her. Nope, nope. Yeah, bless her heart. Otherwise, she is just a shaking, quivering terror. And I feel bad for dogs that are like that. The dog that I had before her, Shiloh, you could have lit a firecracker under her butt and she wouldn't have looked at just weird. She would just been like, huh, what's going on there? But there are some dogs that just do not handle noises very well. And, you know, for those people that have them, you know, you have them. So maybe don't let them run loose during this time of, time of year. Keep them inside, keep them in their pens you know, take them out on a leash to potty. <laughs> exactly. Hang on to them, okay, guys? Because you know they're going to be runners. Every single year we have the whole, have you seen my dog? Look, buddy, <laughs> you know <laughs> that they're chickens. Come on, think ahead. Yeah. I was always terrified that my horse would get loose during the fireworks. One of them did one time. So, yeah. Fireworks I, should not be around animals. I'll tell you what. Um, my dad, the only time he would raise a ruckus is if uh, we had animals at the fair and somebody, you know, those little snappers, those little snap popper things that you can buy in a box and you just throw them on the ground and they make that little pop, you know? Mm -hmm. 
well, they used to sell a lot of those in the eighties at the fairs, you know? And, uh, I remember one time my dad collared a couple of boys that were throwing those at the feet of cattle. And this is back when, you know, if you were a random adult and you saw a kid misbehaving, you could knock some sense into him and nobody <laughs> called the law. Well, he knocked some sense into him. <laughs> yeah, I would have too. <laughs> uh, he happened to know their mamas. And so their mamas then also took on the task of knocking some sense into him. So these things happen. But yeah. uh, I guess the plans here in Dodge City kind of changed for our holiday because normally we have the largest fireworks display in Western Kansas, don't we? Yeah. Did they move to the? Did they move it to the Roundup, or is it still at the stadium? No, they they had to move it to the Roundup Arena last year because where we uh, where we normally would hold it at the football stadium, which is in my backyard, it's now too close to uh, new construction because we had an addition onto our our middle school, and so they had to move it back out to the the Roundup Arena, and but this year. They're not going to be able to do it because they have some funding issues. We just don't have the the donations like we used to in the years past. And it's just been a really tough year for, for everyone when it comes to being able to sponsor the summer events, isn't it? Yeah, I've noticed that there's been a lot of them around that have been canceled and a lot of the rodeos and the fairs and stuff. And it's got to be from the, the economic impact that we've had from, from the Rona. From the Rona, yeah. Speaking of the Rona, how's everything out your way? Everybody good? Everybody staying healthy? As far as I know. Hey, that's good. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I was going to try to find the, the latest Kansas Wheat Harvest Report. Um, so the Kansas Wheat Commission, Kansas Association of Wheat Growers, and the Kansas Grain Feed Association send out a, a harvest report daily. And it looks like that... Uh, Let's see, harvest is really about 75% done in some spots, 100% done in others. Um, Justin Knopf, Justin Knopf, who we know um, from Saline County, he said he started harvesting just June 24th. Uh, but a lot of farmers in the Saline County area, that's the central part of Kansas, they've already passed the halfway point of harvest. Um, he said he saw some protein levels ranging from 10 to 13%. And that's that's not too shabby, really. Um, he says they had some good grain fill um, that helped mask some of the damage done from the Easter freeze. So that's not too shabby. Uh, our friend Doug Kiesling over in Rice County, uh, that's close to the southern central part of, you know, middle central part of the state, I guess. Um, he said he took his first load of wheat into the co-op on June 25th. There, even though they were delayed, he says they are 75% finished, only a couple more days left. Um, some varieties that stood out, he said, were AgriPro's Bob Dole and Kansas Wheat Alliance's Zenda. So that's not too shabby. Uh, you've got some wheat fields out your direction. Everybody's getting those cut, right? Yeah, the neighbor stopped by, I think it was probably two days ago. We, they were getting ready to cut at the field that's right at the end of our driveway, and he was warning me in case there was a fire and he wanted to fill up his, his fire extinguisher that he had with me with, with some water. So everything went fine with his. And I noticed the next night they had moved to the, another field just north of here. The guy that my husband works for, they finished up the other day. 
And he's grateful for that because harvest is not his favorite time of year. <laughs> I tell you what, harvest is long, hot, dusty work, even with the advances in equipment um, that we have. And, and we're going to speak later on with our All Aboard We Harvest correspondent. Um, let's see, who do we have this week again, Kayleen? Lindsay Orgain. That's right. We have Lindsay Orgain coming on, on to the podcast this week. And so we're going to get a, a, an update from her crew, where they're at and everything. I tell you what, um, I was I was looking here at the Kansas Co-op Association in Pratt. Their harvest began in June 15th, and that's the, the central southern part of Kansas, or south central part of Kansas. And they brought in a total of 460,000 bushels of wheat. That's not too shabby con- considering the situation that our wheat, winter wheat crop looked at coming into to harvest. So if you're listening to us on the combine or you're listening to us from the, the, uh, the grain truck or the grain cart or even in the kitchen as you're uh, preparing meals for the field, hey, thanks for joining us and good luck and be safe out there. Right, Kayleen? Yeah, absolutely. We want everybody to come home. Exactly. Um, I tell you what, have you ever had, when your dad was farming, did you guys have some close calls? Yeah, there was a couple of times. I wasn't in the truck with mom, but we had a new truck one year. Well, it was new to us. It wasn't brand new, but it was a big international uh, grain truck. It was bigger than the, the bobtail trucks that we had. She had a blowout on the highway over by Howell and it was mom and my sister, and to listen to my sister talk about it, she was going to die. She's like, I saw my life flash into her full eyes. And you're, you're 10, 12 years old. This is kind of traumatic experience for you. It is a little she, scary. Mom, yeah, mom, it was pretty hairy. Mom got it off the road, kept it upright. She was loaded, too, so it's kind of <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> well, I tell you, um, my dad actually burned up a combine in the field. And uh, it was late at night. I'm not sure if I shared this story with you last year about this time, but I tell it every year, it seems like. My dad was running a a case combine back in the the mid-90s. And it was late at night. He was making one more round. Mom had just gone out to bring him supper. And he was filling both of the grain trucks so that way they'd be ready to go to haul into the elevator the next morning. And uh, it was dark. And mom had just climbed down off the combine after making a round with him. And she was heading back. And she happened to look back in the rearview mirror of her car as she was getting, as she was pulling out of the field. And she saw a spark. Well, the grain dust had accumulated on the, on top of the combine near the bin and it caught fire. And she got out and got dad's attention, you know, honked the horn, flashed the lights, was, was raising a ruckus, got him to stop. He saw the fire and he realized it was going to be too much for his extinguisher on the, on the, on the combine. And so he had the presence of mind to pull it onto the already harvested portion of the field. And then he got down with this extinguisher and tried putting it out. And we are lucky we have him today. You know, it can happen just like that. So, you know, it, Thank goodness mom looked in a rear view mirror. <laughs> um, or otherwise that story would have a much different, much different ending. So uh, safety is no laughing matter, folks. Take it seriously. Even, and, and we all know that there's some really cute pictures at, at harvest time. My goodness, we, we all have 
you know, cousins that city cousins that come out and want to play. Uh, you know, we, we've got neighbors that are running equipment for us. We know that it's a busy time, but maybe just take that extra second to, to look around you to be safe. Okay. Because we, like Kayleen says, we all want you to come home. <laughs> well, let's see what else have we got going on. Oh, hey, next week we've got the Altus Sorghum Frontiers Virtual Field Day, Kayleen. Yeah, July 8th. July 8th. Now, if you haven't already done so, you want to you wanna sign up for that at hpj.com slash sorghum frontiers. And you will get a link to the online virtual field day. And we really appreciate our, our Alta friends doing that. It's going to be Wednesday, July 8th at one o'clock in the afternoon. So, it, and if you can't make it during the live webinar, that webinar will be recorded and it'll be located on that website so that you can uh, follow along at a later time. It's kind of nice to have a, a field day come to you, Kayleen. Yeah, it sure is. Usually you're out tromping through the, the hot field getting mosquito bites and melting. <laughs> I know. I'm. I don't know how quite to handle being in the air conditioned cool. So, <laughs> just no. go outside and go get you some mosquito bites and <laughs> get warm for an hour. You know, I think to put myself in the real mood, I am gonna spray some bug spray and lather myself up with sunscreen before I go and moderate this field day. I, I think that'll put me in the right frame of mind, Kayleen. Got <laughs> all your smells out there. Well, you got to immerse yourself in the full field day experience. I, you really do. <laughs> <laughs> no, folks, this uh, virtual field day, it's the first time we've done any virtual uh, platform for our, our educational events, and we are tickled to, uh, to do that. So just can't wait. So how are you folks out there? You can drop us a line at hpjtalk at hpj.com and let us know or call us at 1-800-452-7171. Hey, and do us a favor. Go on and head over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Go ahead and leave us a review. This week's episode, we're going to bring you the stories you might have missed in the June 29th print edition. We'll have our report from the field with our All Aboard Weed Harvest correspondent, Lindsay Orgain. And Kayleen's going to bring us the latest on grain markets, and we'll, of course, have our final thoughts. Hey, Alta Seeds is bringing you this week's episode of HPJ Talk. Alta Seeds will debut its new iGrowth Sorghum line July 8th in the first-ever Sorghum Frontiers Virtual Field Day online. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide-tolerant sorghum that's now commercially available in the United States market, enabling pre- or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to register at www.hpj.com slash sorghum frontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. All righty, it is a scorcher out there, folks. Why don't you go ahead and grab yourselves a cool drink right out of the cooler on the back of that pickup, turn the AC up in the cap, and ride with us here on HPJ Talk. Essential Fiber, Rural America Drives and Binds the Nation's Economic Engine. 
Farmers and ranchers feed the world and often spread their bounty across the land and the world. Dave spoke with Ward Eckloff in Mendon, Nebraska, and Corky White of Paris, Texas. Eckloff is a, sorn, a corn, soybean, and alfalfa grower, in addition to having a commercial cow-calf operation where he raises club calves and other registered cattle. White is also a cow-calf operator who raises his own hay. The pair discuss with Dave what being in agriculture means to them and how important feeding the world is to them. Quote, people who live in the Midwest are the best people through and through. A handshake, fist bump, or your word is your bond. A lifestyle is conducive to a good way of life and a healthy way of life. White offers a similar sentiment. I do believe that when all things are going well out in the countryside, that it makes all of this worth it. End quote. Kayleen, I think he's right. You know, um, my dad used to sell a lot of bulls, a lot of bulls on a handshake and a check. You know, you take a man's check, you take his handshake and his word, and and he rarely had anybody, you know, do him wrong. Yeah, there's there's always good people out there, but there's always the bad ones that spoil it. Yeah. Hopefully there's more good ones than there is bad ones. I think that's, uh, I was listening on, on NPR the other day, and they were talking about how really smaller towns in America may actually have been more already able to handle the pandemic because they're, they're already pulling together and, and filling gaps where they see gaps. You know, it's not, well, that's somebody else's problem. It's, hey, there's a need there. Let's figure out how we can fill that need and, and move on. Um, there's a lot of problem solving that happens when you only have a few people together and you still have have big dreams and big goals. And so um, I, I, I do got to say that rural America, you know, when the chips are down, we figure it out. We, we have to be flexible and, and uh, find a way to, to get the work done, right? Yeah. Even going back to like the time of the, of the Starbucks fire with our experience, I mean, there was always somebody there to help you. There was so somebody willing to help us and just like when we bought the land, the local bank in Ashland was the one that helped us get financed. And it was just one conversation with one person that led to another one. And it just kind of all fell into place. And all of that happened in Clark County, Kansas, which is not a very big county. Well, geographically, it's a large county. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, numbers wise, people go. Yeah. <laughs> cows definitely outnumber the people there. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> I, I do got to say, um, this is, that's one of the, the beautiful things about living out here is we, we pull together, you know, and uh, we, we make it work. So, all righty, David Murray uh, ha- also has a story, need an income stream? How about growing environmental outcomes? If you've ever thought about adding an income stream to your existing farming operation, the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund has a proposition for you growing environmental outcomes. So back in April, the Iowa Soybean Association, Quantified Ventures, and Cargill entered into a joint venture that pays farmers for outcomes that result from adopting best practices that will sequester carbon and improve water quality. It's called the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund. So Quantified Ventures describes itself as an outcomes-based capital firm that drives transformative health, social, and environmental impact. And the development of this fund was supported by a grant from the Walton Family Foundation. 
Adam Keel, the program's manager, managing director and Iowa Soybean Association director of conservation and external programs, said that 14 Iowa farmers who manage about 9,500 acres altogether are taking part in the pilot program this year. Their goal is to move to 100,000 participating acres by the end of 2021. Keel expects that most of those acres will be in Iowa, but some acres may come from neighboring states. So pretty much, they are recruiting farmers to produce carbon and water quality improvements that are valued by corporate and civic consumers. So by stacking all of these benefits of these practices, they are able to provide a cost-competitive solution to achieving regulatory or environmental outcomes. That's pretty cool, Kayleen. Yeah, that is pretty neat. It seems like it's just one more way that a farmer can kind of diversify if he needs to have that extra extra income. Well, and you also get credit for the, the tasks that you're already doing. You know, yeah. it's one thing to say, yes, we are environmentally conscious out here, but you also have to have a way to measure it and then a way to market that. And this is one way that, that uh, people are pulling together. I find yeah. it fascinating. On the Opinions and Editorials page, Editor Dave Bergmeier has this column, Farmers and Ranchers Work Feeds the American Dream. A letter to the editor comes from Kyle Barbie of Beaver, Oklahoma, titled Cattle Industry Faced with Tough Challenges. And another letter with, about the beef industry comes from Jerry Bird of Beeler, Kansas, titled Beef Originality is Worth Labeling. Lacey Newland has a story, Webinar Sheds Light on Dilemma Dairy Pro- Producers Face. Uh, the dairy industry continues to recover with restaurants opening again. Grocery stores are now removing limits on dairy products. Farm Credit recently held a webinar about COVID-19's effects on the dairy industry, which included financial professionals and dairy farmers with their insights on the pandemic. Amanda Duro, vice president and dairy specialist at CoBank, said the coronavirus caused a unique dilemma for the dairy industry. Quote, on the same day you saw headlines that dairy farmers were dumping tanker loads of milk, grocery stores were limiting consumers with how many gallons of milk they could buy, she said. Quote, dumping milk is not a new thing, and it's being dumped at some level every month due to milk's seasonal nature and the capacity of processing plants. However, the amount of milk dumped in April 2020 was unprecedented, end quote. Uh, and as you'll remember, if you're a longtime listener of this podcast back in April, we did have a, a discussion about what was going on in the dairy industry and, and the dumping issue. And, and it's good to hear that we are now figuring out how to turn that faucet the other way, Kayleen. Yeah, there's finding other ways to, to package it and send it on its way. And now that some of the restaurants are back open, they can back, get their supply back. Yep, yep. Speaking of restaurants. Have you dined in lately? Uh, my husband and I went a couple weeks ago, I think. Good. Um, the fella and I, we dined in for the first time on Saturday. It was, <laughs> <laughs> um, I got to say, it felt weird. It really did feel weird to sit down and and have a meal in a in a restaurant with strangers. Yeah. I never would have thought that that would be a weird experience, but it felt weird, Kayleen. <laughs> <laughs> well, we went to a place that we, you know, have gone to for a long time, and it was weird because it was empty. And it's just strange that there's, and it was a Friday night. No, it was a Saturday night, I guess it was. It 
it was strange that there was not any people in this place on a Saturday night. <laughs> well, and the dairy farmers, you should be very proud of me because I had cheese when I ate out. So there you go. I, I did my part. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that the, the uh, milk and yogurt and cheese that is in my grocery cart all the time <laughs> makes up for that. Exactly. You know what? Um, there's a reason why we have refrigerators, people. <laughs> <laughs> and Jenny, you had a piece about the Colombian flower sales that have fallen during due to COVID-19. Where did you run across that information at? So I tell you what, the U.S. Department of Agriculture has foreign agriculture service um, professionals that are posted in countries where we have our, our embassies. And they, their entire job is to look at the, the, agricultural on, um, the agriculture issues on the ground there and then post reports about them. In Colombia, um, many people not, may not be fully aware, but all of the flowers, almost like it's a high percentage. I want to say it's like, you know, way over 75% of the flowers that you buy at the flower shop in the United States have been flown in from Colombia. They were grown under greenhouse conditions in these large, huge greenhouses in uh, in, in around uh, Bogota and, and other places in Colombia. And it is a major, major agricultural export for that tiny little country uh, to the tune of it's millions of dollars worth of, of income. And it's valuable jobs for, for Colombian women who work in these greenhouses. So what happened when that, with our pandemic, we had already just come out of the Valentine's Day ho holiday, which is a number one rose holiday, right? Uh -huh. And we were all quarantined over Mother's Day, which is the second largest holiday for flower sales. And so they already knew, Colum the Columbia flower folks already knew that they were going to see decreased sales because of everybody being quarantined. Um, it looks like they uh, they didn't have the the reduced numbers that they thought of. I just thought it was an interesting piece to understand how connected we are in our everyday lives. You know, everybody yeah. looks at red roses; they never really think about where the roses came from. Well, and all the weddings and everything that events that have been postponed that have fresh flowers at them mm -hmm. that contributes to that number too. You know, florist shops in the United States are really having a, a very tough time, just along with everybody else in the in the service industry. And so, if you if you really think about it, um, take a moment and go to your local florist, order some flowers, um, you know, for delivery or carry out or however it works for you. Uh, brighten somebody's day, brighten that florist day. Okay, guys. Um, so also on our All Aboard Weed Harvest dedicated pages. We have a little bit about each of our sponsors this year, but uh, so you want to be sure and check that out. But we also have Lindsay Orgain's post for this week. And so you'll be able to, to follow her there in the print edition. And of course, we'll have Lindsay here later on in the podcast with an update straight from the field. Read more on the variety of ag issues facing farmers and ranchers in the print High Plains Journal or look for it online anytime at www.hpj.com. If you have a response to something you've read or heard, please write to us at journal at hpj.com or hpjtalk at hpj.com. We want to hear from you. High Plains Journal's Cattle U is thundering back to the United Wireless Arena in Dodge City, Kansas, July 29th and 30th. 
Don't miss your chance to hear from the top names in the cattle industry and learn how you can bring more value to your herd. Sessions will target all segments of the cattle business, from the cow-calf producer to the feedlot manager. For registration details, visit cattleu.net. And don't forget to look for a code in the print edition of the High Plains Journal for $30 off your registration. Visit cattleu.net today. Scott with HPJ Talk, and I'm here with Brandy Buzzard Frobos. She's going to be one of our speakers at Cattle U coming up in July. How are you doing today, Brandy? I'm doing great, Kayleen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to hear from you. Well, let's just jump right into it. We're not going to reveal everything Brandy's going to talk about at Cattle U, but we're going to get to know her a little better. That way, if you do come to Cattle U, you can have a chance to realize where she's coming from. Brandy, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to college? All that that good stuff. Well, sure. Um, so I grew up in southeast Kansas in Anderson County, which is almost as close as you can get to Missouri without actually being in Missouri. Um, I went to Fort Scott Community College um, right out of high school and got my associates of science. I was there on the rodeo team, and then I transferred to K-State after that and earned degrees in animal science and ag economics, Um, was on the rodeo team there and was really involved in things like agriculture ambassadors and uh, collegiate cattlewomen, block and bridle, all those kinds of things. I decided I apparently hadn't had quite enough school yet, and I stayed and got my master's in, in animal behavior and animal well-being. And upon earning those degrees, uh, I started work for the Beef Cattle Institute. Um, and then that's kind of where my career took off from there. That sounds like you've had a, a full gamut of experiences. Now, tell us a little bit about the blog. When did you start blogging? I started blogging um, in 2009, I believe. I was... Um, yeah, it was 2009. I was in grad school, and I had read some articles in the K-State Collegian from a gal who was a an aunt. She's very strongly opposed animal agriculture, and she was writing things in the paper about accusing milk of causing ear infections and bashing feed yards and things of that nature, and I finally got it. So I wrote a response letter to the editor and sent it in, and I did a poor job of reading the requirements for a letter to the editor and overshot the word count by about 500 words and so they wouldn't print it so at the time um chuck jolly was writing for drovers cattle network and i sent him an email and asked you know what do i do i wrote this the newspaper won't take it but i'm really passionate about this you know what do you think i can do and he had me email it to him and he actually ended up running it in drovers and from there the spark was just kind of lit um i've always enjoyed writing and um, this it was just a natural segue from something I enjoyed doing to start a blog. So mm-hmm. I've had the blog for about a little over a decade now, and um, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes I'm blogging two, three times a month, and sometimes I blog once every six weeks. But it's it's been constant. It's been fun to talk about production issues and consumer issues and things throughout the past decade. And it's interesting to look back at what I was blogging about a decade ago mm-hmm. and see what I'm, you know, I'm blogging about now. So it's been really fun. And it's, it's pretty obvious you have a passion for agriculture. 
Is that just because of your background and how you grew up, or did something else kind of spark that? Um, I didn't actually grow up in, you know, what you'd call production agriculture. My family has, I guess, we had what you'd call a hobby ranch. I've, I've rodeoed my entire life, so we've always had horses. We always had um, some rope and steers and rope and calves, and then we had 4-H animals. So I, I can't tell you that the, the passion for production ag comes from, you know, my upbringing. Mm-hmm. I just always knew that I wanted to work in agriculture with other farmers and ranchers, and I just, I have a distinct need to stand up for an industry that I love. Um, so that's where the passion for kind of telling my ranch story and agriculture's facts comes from is I don't want to see the industry that we all love fade into nothing or be ran by, um, you know, a bunch of animal rights activists. Mm -hmm. I have to agree with you there. Uh, and that kind of leads into my next question about the advocacy. Did you happen into, to this and, is it just something that sort of progressed from your blogging and, and all the things that you're passionate about? Kind of a little bit of both, I would say. It, it definitely did blossom from the blog. You know, I was learning how to connect with people and, and tell stories. But um, because of the experience of the blogging, that actually kind of laid a foundation or uh, for me to start working at um, the National Cattle and Species Association. So while I was, my husband and I lived in Australia in 2011 while he was working on his uh, Fulbright Scholar research, and I actually was freelancing and working on my master's thesis and blogging. And those experiences, being in another country and seeing agriculture and blogging about it and then freelancing for some other newspapers um, really kind of built up my writing experience, I guess. So when I, I came back, um, there was a position open um, when I worked for the Beef – I was at the Beef Cattle Institute, and this position came open at National Cattle Beef Association for – um, a program manager to work in advocacy programs and help train beef producers to be better online advocates. And I was very much entrenched in social media and was, you know, had learned about that. So that was just kind of a natural fit for me to go position. And, and that was really kind of the jumping off point for me um, in this kind of, I guess, advocacy career. Mm-hmm. And then through that, that role at NCBA, I trained, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of beef producers to be better at beef advocates. And I kept blogging and I got experience with dealing with crisis and issues in the, in the beef industry. And I got experience with training people to be on TV. And so just a whole lot of experiences that all help with being an advocate for agriculture. Yeah. That, that seems like you had all the right steps in a row to do what you're doing now. Tell me a little bit about the training of the producers. Is there one thing that kind of sticks out from your experience, you know, helping these people, you know, do what they're supposed to do online as far as advocating for the beef industry? Um, I don't know that there's one specific incidence of, of helping people. There have just been a lot of, you know, I've traveled the, the, the entire United States going to these trainings and, and teaching people how to be better beef advocates. It was during my time when I was managing the Masters of Beef Advocacy Program, which is funded by the Beef Checkoff. And I just met a lot of really great people who were similarly passionate, like I was, about defending our livelihood and standing up for beef production. So I, I can't say that I have one specific instance mm-hmm. in my mind, but I just have a lot of really great memories and great experiences of, of meeting people who are so, so passionate 
about making sure that about raising cattle and about stewardship and about a safe beef supply. And, um, you know, I can say that we have, we need, we should be confident in our, uh, the beef advocates that we have in the United States because they really are, they have a great wealth of knowledge and they really are working every day to make an impact. And you may not see them on CBS news every single day, but when you've got 20,000 people doing a little bit every single day, you've got a 20,000 little butterfly effects. So it's, it's definitely something that I'm proud to have been a part of for, for that time. And you were also recognized for your advocacy efforts with, was that NCBA or what was that your recognition? Yeah, that was the Masters of Beef Advocacy Advocate of the Year. And it is an award that is, uh, someone is chosen by the, by the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Um, so yeah, I was nominated or selected for that in, uh, December or January, just this past December or January, mm-hmm. and was recognized at the cattle industry convention. And uh, I guess we were in San Antonio yeah. this past <laughs> February. So yeah. it was a great honor. It was really, um, I'm not very good at accepting accolades. So it was very awkward to be, have my face on a massive screen, oh, <laughs> um, but it was, it was very nice. Um, I really appreciated the, the award and, and there are, like I said, there's thousands of other advocates just like me who are doing little things every day to make an impact. So I definitely felt like I should be sharing the stage with a bunch of other people. Yeah, I would imagine so. Tell me a little bit about you and your husband's operation that you have going on and how that influences your life. So uh, my husband and I have a purebred Gelby and Balancer seed stock operation. We sell red balancer bulls and, and red gelby bulls in southeast Kansas. Um, so just the nature of having a full-time job and then having, you know, a, another full-time ranch job that we work nights and weekends makes our lives pretty hectic. But um, we really enjoy, I, you know, we love being in the industry and having cattle. And we're both pretty passionate about um, raising good sound cattle that are um, ready to go out and do the work. So it's, it's something we get, we get to do together and we really enjoy that. And our daughter is three and a half and she goes and checks cows and rides horses and she understands calving and heifers and bulls and all that kind of stuff. So it's really cool to be able to involve her in that as well. Yeah, it is. My husband and I have a small cow-calf herd and the boys always clamor to get in the pickup and go check cows at night. And it's kind of neat to be able to share that sort of experience with them. And I know you've been able to share your experiences with, you know, the national crowd. Tell me a little bit about the letter that you wrote that got the national television. Oh, right. Yeah. So I can't remember her name. You'll have to correct That's okay. Me. <laughs> that's okay. Um, in February of 2019, I have to think about what year it is. Um, 2019, uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of her uh, fellow congressmen and women released the Green New Deal or their plan for mm-hmm. a Green New Deal. And in that, I was reading through it. And in that, they had a frequently asked questions document. And in that FAQ, there was some, one of the staffers who wrote it or whatever who wrote it made some statements about how cows are not, you know, cows are hurting the environment, basically, is what they were getting at. And they used poor grammar um, and not, and pretty colorful language to explain it. And Mm -hmm. so I wrote a letter to the the congresswoman, very respectful, um, 
asking her to have a conversation with me, but also pointing out all the great things that cattle do for our environment and how, you know, cattle preserve grasslands and they put carbon back into the soil and things of that nature. And so I wrote it and then I sat on it overnight to think about it more. And I, um, so then I pu- I emailed it to her and I, it actually was a letter. It didn't start out as a blog post. It started as a letter that I emailed to her. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, what the heck, you know, I put it on Twitter and I put it on Facebook and within my blog crashed in like 45 minutes. <laughs> um, I was actually at the Dixie National Livestock Show with my husband in Mississippi and I spent um, a very good, uh, a really sweet friend of mine who raises red Angus cattle and who also is um, a very talented, uh, like media artist and, and agency creative, was helping me get my website back up because it was just crashing. We'd get it up and then it'd crash and we'd get it up and it was crash. And so it generated, the letter obviously has generated quite a bit uh, of media interest at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, the congresswoman was quick to point out that she didn't write that and it wasn't part of the Green New Deal, but somebody on her office or who was in charge of drafting some things clearly thought that cattle were a problem. So that's, that's why I felt the need to write it. And from that letter came um, a visit to our ranch by uh, MSNBC. And then about a month later, I was on Fox news at three 30 in the morning and have done, you know, countless podcasts and interviews. And I was very fortunate to have been able to speak to senior white house officials about sustainability and how cows are part of the climate change solution. Um, I was visited the White House in April of, ni- of 2019 on behalf of uh, cattle farmers and ranchers. So this has been a very cool experience and journey, and um, I hope that I'm able to continue having an impact, um, although I doubt I go to the White House every year. <laughs> I hope that I can keep making a positive impact for, for farmers and ranchers. Yeah, I think you will keep doing that. And you have an opportunity coming up at our Cattle U event to speak. Um, I know you're going to do two sessions, and you don't have to give everything away. Just give us a hint about what kind of topics you're going to speak about in July. Well, the the I won't give it all away, I promise, but the workshop is um, the workshop is about using social media to tell your story. So fo- how you should share photos or maybe how to create a blog post who you should be targeting, that kind of thing. The keynote is more kind of like a call to action about not being complacent, um, not being happy with the status quo, the way things are going, and whether that is um, on their own home operations with their cow-calf operations and the decisions they're making, um, or whether it be watching, you know, sitting by idly while animal rights activists attack the industry. The whole point is that um, you can't wait on other people to stand up for you. The, the time for action is now, and that applies across all areas of our life. So, are, you know, when it gets down to the, the wire, are you going to stand up and say something? Are you going to take control of your destiny and, you know, make things happen for you? Or are you just going to be happy to rest on your laurels and you'll just take whatever you get? So that's kind of the general overall um, raw, raw <laughs> teaser for the, for the keynote. Mm-hmm. Well, and as opinionated as farmers and ranchers are sometimes, I think they do need to be aware of a certain way how to handle things on social media. And it's, it's, it's a different ball game sometimes when you put yourself out there online. And I think, I said, well, that's, that's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, uh, everybody should be looking forward to speaking with or listening to Brandy, and I'm sure she'll be around to answer questions during that day. 
we're all looking forward to all the speakers that are going to be at Cattle U in July. And Brandy, what are you going to do this summer? Oh, this summer? Yeah. Are you going to go rodeo? This is a lotus lotus question. Oh, no. Yes, I am rodeoing. I'm kind of on a hiatus in June because most of the things that I, most, almost all the rodeos in June have been canceled Mm -hmm. um, due to COVID and, and that's their choice and that's fine. Um, But in July, doesn't not as some stuff has been canceled, but not as much. So in July, I will be hitting the road hard and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Although I'm not, I'm not really excited that the, it's already 100 degrees on a regular basis, but um, such is July in Kansas. So, or I guess it's June actually, June yeah. in Kansas. So, uh, but yeah, my plans involve rodeo, um, getting ready for calving season since we are fall calvers. So we're hanging, we're going to be chopping silage in a couple months. We're doing all the stuff that you don't get to do during the winter because you're too busy feeding the cows. So (laughs) working on fence and putting new waters in and all sorts of stuff like that. So that sounds good. Um, Is there anything else you want to add or what do you think? I'm really excited to to be there. I'm I'm very honored to be speaking at Cattle U and I'm just really excited to to see people in person. Yeah. (laughs) I'm an introvert, but I do need some social interaction. So I'm I'm looking forward to being there and, and meeting some people and, seeing old friends and network uh and networking with new people so i'm really excited to be there and i appreciate the opportunity to speak with you all well that sounds great well i appreciate you talking to me today brandy and you can you all can find more information on cattle you and trade show at www.cattleu.net thanks for talking with me today brandy thank you kaylee Well, welcome to the podcast, Lindsay Orgain, one of our All Aboard Wheat Harvest correspondents this year. And uh, Lindsay, you guys just finished moving all the equipment from the home place to your first stop on the road. Is that right? That's right. I'm I'm quite literally watching our guys put the duels back on the combine. So, I mean, we are we are right in the middle of it all right now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so for our listeners who may not have experienced um picking up and moving equipment that is probably the size of, you know, the average apartment in a sure. in a mid-sized <laughs> community, um maybe talk about what all what all do you have to make sure happens as you load equipment, as you get on the road and to do it safely and to make sure everybody gets there where they're supposed to be going? I know it's, there, gosh, there's a lot to it. Um, with this being our first move from home, we've, we've cut all around our county where we live at, but never had to load anything. Um, so this is kind of our first go around for this season. And just, I mean, just something as simple as, finding all the chains and straps and all the stuff you know it's it's just kind of a because just from use throughout the year you know just getting everything gathered back up and you know making sure it's all where it needs to be and (laughs) it just kind of I mean we spent that's what we did all day yesterday was just getting things ready to go so we we left home at about oh six o'clock this morning to to head up here where 
um, we are northwest of Waukee, Kansas, and St. Peter. And um, so anyway, it's just that's a long haul. It, it is. It, it took us oh about five hours or so. Um, we were hoping to kind of beat the heat, but I think that's kind of impossible this time of <laughs> the year. And anyway, it, just you know, just getting all the stuff gathered up and back together is mm-hmm. probably like the biggest hurdle to begin with, you know. But. So now you talked about taking the duels off the combine. So for mm-hmm. those of you guys listening, um, the big, big tires on the combines, if you were to load them onto a trailer, they stick out a ways and, and um, are over the, the size limit, right? Yes, so that's a big no-no. So <laughs> They must come off, yes. <laughs> so not only is it, you know, mandatory that you take them off, but then you have to put them back on. Correct. Yes. So when you're putting them back on, how do you do that? How do they lift it um, up and get them on? We, our service pickup actually has a crane on it, so that's a godsend. We, I just, oh, I remember doing this several years ago without one, and it was awful. And so it became a must immediately, just kind of with our smaller crew and. You know, God bless my husband. Sometimes I'm always God. (laughs) We kind of have to have to take help where we can, and that crane has proved priceless for us. So we haul them. We've got an attachment that's attached on the front of the combine where the header would attach, and that's where we haul the duels at. So that we have to get them off of that. You know, set down on the ground, and then uh, then kind of set back on the where they attached back onto the combine. So it's a, it is a process. That's probably the least looked forward to job when when we get moved somewhere. Mm -hmm. But once they're on, they're on and it's done. So So now um, when you're on the road and you're traveling and in this uh, caravan that probably looks like a circus, if it looks like anything my dad ever ran um, moving between fields, um, when you're, when you're driving like that, Safety is, of course, your your number one concern. So, what what's your advice for people? Again, our listeners who may not understand how they should approach a traveling circus um, right. when they're on the road. The rules of the road. How can they be better? Uh, how can they be better uh, drivers when it comes to uh, seeing farm equipment on the road? You know, I, I think patience is the biggest you know, the biggest thing to take into consideration. And, you know, if that doesn't do it for you, maybe think maybe that could be my husband or my wife or my kids, you know, in that, in that equipment, hauling that stuff down the road. You know, I just think being patient and just, just give them a minute when they can move over, they will, you know, they're going to get where they're going to go fairly, you know, they wouldn't be on on the highway if it was going to, be a long drawn out deal or what, you know, it's just be patient, give them a minute and it'll all be fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I totally agree folks. So when you see that big equipment on the road, give them their space, make sure that they can see you in their mirrors and just be, like she said, be patient. Yes. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen a couple of different things that, you know, they don't want that combine out on the road any more than, somebody in a passenger car wants it on the road, you know, so just, yeah. just remember, they don't want to be on the road, but it's just part of it sometimes. So. Yep, yeah. Well, now let's switch gears here. We've got the sure. 4th of July weekend is upon us. You all just hit your, your first 
uh, field outside of the home country, home county. Um, what what do you guys typically do for Fourth of July in the wheat field? Uh, every weedy, every group has a, a different thing that they do for the fourth. But what's something that you always pause to make sure that you do on Fourth of July, even though you got to get the weed in? Sure. We, I mean, we definitely take in the fireworks from the from the combine. I mean, if we're if we're not in the combine, then somebody, you know, the weather hasn't cooperated or what, you know. Everyone, I think, who's doing this for a living just wants to be cutting wheat at all times, you know, whatever that, whatever sacrifices that may bring up, you know. But um, we try to, like, grill some burgers or something, you know, kind of do something American, I get, you know, burgers, baked beans, maybe some potato salad, you know, just mm-hmm. something that might kind of at least acknowledge, you know, <laughs> you know what's, what's going on in the, you know, across the rest of the country. <laughs> <laughs> My mom's rule was there was always watermelon for dessert yes. on 4th yes. of July. That's a, that's a good one too. That, yeah, everyone loves that, I think. So. <laughs> you can't go wrong with iced down watermelon. That yes. is a refreshing treat. <laughs> yes. We had a, a farmer last year would bring out root beer floats to our guys. And I, I was like, I don't know if I was at the camper running parts or whatever. And I show, show back up and they've all got root beer floats. <laughs> and that's something we talk about all the time now. So I probably need to make that happen if we don't you know, make that happen again this year. So, yeah, you know, that, that brings to mind when I was a kid growing up, we had a, a pastor and her husband. And he was a, he was a farmer and he was retired and, and, um, they would haul around during wheat harvest. They would have coolers full of pop, um, ice down pop. And they would go from field to field all over the, the church group, you know, and just stop in and see how you're doing and say, Hey, and, and what do you need? Is there anything you can, you know, anything we can do for you? And I tell you what, that Pepsi wagon was one of the things that would get my dad off the combine. <laughs> I bet no one's going to turn down a cold during this time. I mean, that's, that's heavenly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, no pun intended, but. <laughs> but it's a good pun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, hey, um, before we let you go, how is the, the wheat looking that, that you've already cut? Uh, you're, you're from Western Oklahoma. And, Correct. And we know that that it was kind of a, a tough year though for, for wheat guys. So what did you see and, and what do you hope to see now that you're in, in at North Joaquin? Um, at home, definitely um, saw freeze damage, hail damage, and um, something I kind of saw for the first time this year. And I mean, it's not a new thing at all, but just to see it with my own eyes. Uh, they have a huge wild hog problem out there. And just to see the destruction that those pests can cause was wild. I, oh, I just had never seen, you know, seen that myself. I've heard all about it. But, um, but anyway, I mean, mainly the hail and freeze was unfortunate for a lot of a lot of stuff out there we uh we were probably averaged about 20 bushel wheat i mean there were definitely much lower areas and and higher but i'd say 20 was about average so Mm -hmm. and then here everything everything's looking great here they have had a bunch of rain here lately so we're kind of i think a little nervous about (laughs) about jumping out there i mean we're going to but we're prepared to put on our mud boots, I think, if we need to. So. Yep, yep. Now that wild hog um, damage, 
did you drop a combine in the in the ruts that they left behind? I mean, um, well, how, how I mean, bad was it? What they, it's like, I mean, it just kind of looks like they laid down on it. You know, if you mm. kind of think about wheat that's been rained on and blown over it, you know, that's kind of similar, I guess, you, I, where we were at, it's definitely thinner wheat than, up to, you know, that mm-hmm. probably wouldn't sustain wind and rain damage, but it's just kind of, and then um, my husband kind of just got, they're just messy eaters, so it's like they kind of grab it and just throw it around, it's it's crazy looking, but oh. then, you know, it's like, what happened here, <laughs> but, but hogs, so anyway, so you just, I mean, yeah, you just run over it and hope you can get what you can, and mm-hmm. obviously stuff on the ground has already been destroyed anyway, so... Yeah. Well, hey, I, it sounds like Western Oklahoma could use some hog hunters. So if you're listening, I mean, yes, I've seen helicopters fly. Like they're they're serious about it, trying to get a hold on it mm-hmm. out there. But I mean, scope, scoping them out with helicopters and everything—it's kind of it's it's something else. And yeah, hopefully they can get a get it rained in a little bit one of these times. Well, hey, Lindsay, we probably ought to let you get going and, and get supper rounded up for the crew. And yes. and good luck getting everybody um, in the field. Be safe out there. And uh, we will check in with you in a couple of weeks or so back here on the podcast. And, and folks, remember, um, you can follow Lindsay online on the blog at allaboardharvest.com. Hey, Lindsay, we'll check in with you later, okay? Sounds good. Take care. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. And remember, if you want to catch up with our All Aboard Wheat Harvest crews, visit their blog at allaboardharvest.com and look for their posts in the pages of High Plains Journal each week. All Aboard Wheat Harvest is brought to you by Oklahoma Baptist Homes for Children, Unreferred Manufacturing, AgriPro Seed, Agco Gleaner, and BASF, who all remind you that we're all in this together. High Plains Journal is bringing Wheat Sorghum U back to the Kansas Star Event Center in Mulvane, Kansas, August 11th. Don't miss this one-day event with speakers from around the High Plains, bringing you the education and tools you need to boost your wheat and sorghum bottom lines. Registration is free. Don't delay. Save your seat today at hpj.com. Your grain market prices from Dog City's Pride Egg Resources on June 23rd. Corn was down at $3.25. Wheat was up at $4.00. Milo was down at $3.25, and soybeans were up at $7.80. If you'd like to have crop or livestock targeted news emailed directly to you, sign up for our HPJ Direct email newsletters on our website, www.hpj.com signup. Simply select the topics that interest you, and you'll receive updates on them directly to your email. again to Alta Seeds for sponsoring this week's episode. Alta Seeds will debut its new iGrowth Sorghum line July 8th in its first ever Sorghum Frontiers virtual field day. iGrowth is the world's first non-GMO herbicide tolerant sorghum that's now commercially available in the United States market, enabling pre or post-emergent weed control. Be sure to register for the online access at 
www.hpj.com slash sorghumfrontiers to learn more about this new trait and the company that's bringing it to your farm. Remember, you can subscribe for free to this podcast at hpj.com slash podcast. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, and wherever you download podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at HPJ Talk for news and commentary throughout the week. And you can always drop us a line at our email, hpjtalk at hpj.com. Thanks again, folks, for riding along with us as we bring ag news and commentary to you. And remember, as Dodge City's favorite lawman, Wyatt Earp, once said, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. We'll see you on the trail.